Good evening. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 22. If you've been with us on this series, Names We Forget, Truths to Remember, you know we have not been putting the uh, verses on the screen. So to follow along, you'll need your own Bible. If you didn't bring one, I think there's one on every pew, and you can grab one there and follow along. Numbers chapter 22. While you're turning there, I'll tell you the story. You may have heard about it, about a farmer who wanted to sell his donkey. Potential buyers showed up and looked the, the mule over. He asked if he could hitch him up to the wagon and see how he worked. So the farmer did so, and the would-be customer climbed up on the wagon and grabbed the reins. He tapped the reins, nothing happened. He said, giddy up, nothing happened. Clicked his tongue, nothing happened. The farmer said, wait a minute. He reached over and grabbed a two-by-four and whacked the donkey right between the eyes. He said, now give it a try. He pulled the reins and off the donkey went. And the farmer said, he's a good donkey, but you have to get his attention first. Tonight we're going to look at a story where a donkey is used to get a man's attention. You know, the Bible teaches us that if we seek God, we will find him. And I believe that. We looked this morning in Luke chapter 15, another angle of that where God is seeking us. He's uh, the one wanting to find us as well. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So tonight I want us to go to Numbers chapter 22 and look at this story about how God used a, a very unusual way to get someone's attention and then some lessons we can learn from it. So first, let's look at Balaam's dilemma. A little background about this man I think would be helpful in our understanding of the story. Uh, the main person in this story, the main character, is a man by the name of Balaam. And confusion exists really about his spiritual status. Was he a follower of God or, or was he not? Because you read through the story and some assume that he was a follower of God because he used the personal name of God, Yahweh. And other folks who didn't believe in God, especially have a devotion to him, they wouldn't do that. And so he also seemed to want to carry out only what the Lord wanted. On the other hand, if you've read this story before, or you've studied the background, you know a little bit about Balaam. He was a diviner, and that's expressly forbidden in the law. So how could someone who is following God, calls him by his personal name, also... Make his living doing what the law would forbid. Plus, there's a number of other times, even in the New Testament, where Balaam is used in a negative light. Second Peter chapter 2, Jude chapter 11, it says there, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Book of Revelation references him in a negative way. So with all of that, we get the idea that Balaam is not a godly man. He was a seer. He was a fortune teller. Some scholars think he was a sorcerer, sort of a far eastern witch doctor. Balaam made his money by pronouncing curses on people or blessings on people. And evidently he was, he was good at it. But don't think of him as being a godly man because religion was more of a business. Not so much a matter of faith. Or at least that's what the text helps us to see. In Numbers chapter 22, the king of the nation of Moab, Balak, wanted Balaam to use his power on God's people. They'd moved in next door. The Bible tells us he was very scared about the situation. And obviously, Balaam nor Balak had any idea that God's chosen people 
were these people who had just moved in next door. But desperate times require desperate measures. So Balak, the king of Moab, was afraid. Look in your Bibles in Numbers chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they were too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed, and those you curse are cursed. Now, interestingly, Balaam was willing to acknowledge that the God of Israelites was a powerful God. But his story, as we keep reading in this, it exposes this deception of maintaining this outward appearance of spirituality, like he has this connection with God himself and can pronounce these blessings and pronounce these curses. And yet down deep inside was not a heart following God, was not a heart trying to be obedient at all. seems like Balaam was ready to obey God's command as long as he would profit from it. And doing so, he realized the power of God, but his heart was really more bowing down to the riches. In fact, look at verse 7. The prominent leaders of Moab came to Balaam with his money, asking him to curse the Israelites. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. However, not reading all of this, but during the night, God appears to Balaam, tells him not to curse the Jews says that God has blessed them. And to his credit, Balaam tells the leaders he cannot do what they ask. Well, the leaders go back and tell the king the news. The king doesn't believe that, doesn't sit well with him. So he figures maybe Balaam is just playing hardball, maybe haggling over the fee a little bit. Verse 15, the king sings, sends some more distinguished men. Look at verse 16. King Balak pleads with you to come, they say. He promises you great honors plus... Any payment you ask, name your own figure, only come and curse these people for us. And again, once again, Balaam's credit, he refuses because he, he, he knows to acquiesce to them would be to disobey God. But look at verse 19, and I think verse 19 gives us a little insight into his character. However, stay here for tonight. So I can find out whether the Lord will add anything to what he said before. Like, I wonder if there's a P.S. Or I wonder if there's any other way. This is a place where we can kind of ask out loud, Balaam, what part of no did you not understand? Because God told him no. And Balaam's got a dilemma on his hands. He's been given a blank check. A blank check with his name on it. You name the price. And this king could make it happen. This is not an empty promise. He could follow through. But he knows to get that money, he has to disobey God. And the very fact that Balaam asked the men to spend the night, that he's going to go back to God and say, I wonder if there's anything else he might add to this command. Again, I think it's very telling. 
I think it becomes very obvious that Balaam's motivation is greed. He's trying to pad his own pockets, and he's taught a good game. What he really wants is more money, more, though, more so than pleasing God. And I think about this story, and I think like so many people, though, you and I can be just like it where we want God's way to be our way. We might even go to him in prayer and ask for our way to be his way. Maybe we're guilty of just the same thing. Look what happens in verse 22, uh, 20 through 22. I think these are kind of interesting. Verse 20, that night God told Balaam, you may get up and go with these men, but be sure to say only what I tell you. You read that verse, and it sounds like God has allowed Balaam to go, right? Because Balaam does go. And you know, a number of translations say that God was mad at him for going. Even though we just read there where he says, you may go. For example, the New Living Translation tells us in verse 19 to 20, that night God came to Balaam and told him, since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but be sure to do only what I tell you to do. So the next morning, Balaam settled his donkey and started off with the Moabite officials, but God was furious with him. That's how the New Living Translation, the NIV has similar language. The Old King James Version you remember this phrase, God's anger was kindled? Remember reading that phrase? God's anger was kindled because he went. So question, why would God tell him to go and then get mad at him, get furious at him? Why would his anger be kindled for going? Well, two possible answers here. Some scholars think that God really wasn't giving him permission at all. And that maybe the way this translated into our language, we missed the point. But really more so an exasperation to say, well, you're going to go anyway, so you might as well go. Sort of like if a friend comes to you for advice, and you give them advice, and they don't take your advice, and so you say, well, just do what you want to do. You're really not advising them to just do what you want to do, but you're sort of acknowledging that they're not going to heed your wisdom, and they're going to do what they're going to do. So God really wasn't giving him permission, just acknowledging that Balaam was going to do what Balaam wanted to do. But another possibility is not that God was angry that Balaam went, but really more so of the attitude that he had as he went. Look at verse 21 and following. Balaam got up in the morning, settled his donkey, went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. See, for Balaam, he's going with the attitude, I'm going to figure out a way. He even told these men, I'm going to go and and talk to the Lord and see if there's another uh, part of his command. And then 2 Peter 2, verse 15, I alluded to that earlier, sort of tells the rest of the story. In the context of that chapter, Peter is writing and talking about people who displease God. And it says, they have left the straight way... And wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. If we were to summarize a person's life, and that's what's happening here, that's what's said about Balaam. He loved the wages of wickedness. So maybe that's why God was angry with him. That was his attitude. That was his heart. That was his motivation. So while Balaam is going with this sinful attitude, God prepares the most amazing story. We may not remember a lot of the details, but we remember this animal who talks in Numbers chapter 22. I don't think we can explain it, how 
Does an animal talk in a language that you can understand? Obviously, this is a miracle happening here. But you've heard this before. If you can believe the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created, then you can believe any other verse in the Bible. And if God created all that we have from nothing, the same God is powerful enough to make an animal talk. Look at how and why it happened. Due to Balaam's secret desire to disobey God for money, he sends an angel to stop him. And God, being the gracious God that he is, he gives Balaam one more chance. Let's pick up the story. Look at the last part of verse 23. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then, verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Verse 26, and the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat her with his staff. So three times, this donkey just puzzles Balaam. He can't figure out why she's acting this way. This is not typical for for this uh, animal because he does not see what she sees. First, she runs off the road. He beats her. She gets back on the road. Then she crushes his foot. And then he beats her again. And then just pops it on the road. And again, the donkey gets a beating. And then it happens, verse 28. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You've made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Isn't that great? The donkey reasons as to why she's getting whipped. And what battles my mind is that there's no mention him of, of, here of him being astonished that his animal is talking. He's so caught up in this boatload of money that he's about to make and or being made a fool in front of these others that he just quickly jumps into explanation. The donkey talks, he talks back. Look at verse 30. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. I think, again, this shows a little insight into his character. Not only is he consumed by money, he's consumed by how he looks. He's trying to press these people. He wants to close the deal. He doesn't want anything to go awry. Why did you beat me? You made me look like a fool. If I had a sword, I would kill you. And then what happens next is even more incredible. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. I wonder, as I was studying this this week, I wonder why we're more amazed at a donkey opening his mouth than a human having his eyes opened, being able to see an angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. Obviously, such a terrifying sight. He falls low, bows low, and fell face down. Nothing compares to that kind of image. Not even an animal talking. 
Forget that detail. Now he sees an angel of the Lord. And the first words out of the angel of the mouth Lord is concern for the donkey. Let's keep reading. Verse 32, the angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away, I would certainly would have killed you by now. But I would have spared her. You see the twist in the story. God used this loyal animal to get Balaam's attention. And the animal saved his life and Balaam is so caught up in his own agenda, he doesn't even see that. He's not even aware. But when the angel speaks, he realizes his wrong. He confesses. Look in verse 34. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. But the angel tells him to go with these men. But again, the same message, completely obey the Lord. If you're familiar with the story, you know Balaam does just that. What a great story. What application can we make? What are some lessons to learn? Let me just share three before we go home. Number one, when temptation comes your way, run from it. When temptation comes your way, run from it. Balaam would have never had to be saved from an angel if he had just said no to the temptation. Just obey what God said. Don't go with those men. The first time the king asked, it was no, plain and simple. But when the king came back and sweetened the pot, he wanted to find a way to go. So understand a couple of things about temptation. I hope you know this. Maybe this is just a reminder. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Sometimes we get confused with that. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you've sinned. Jesus was tempted. And the writer of Hebrews tells us he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So doing what's right doesn't mean that you are never tempted. So don't become discouraged when that thought passes through your mind. When you are tempted to carry out that evil desire, you're not responsible for what comes into your mind and even into your heart. But you are responsible with the actions you take and what you do with that thought. Martin Luther once said, you may not be able to stop a bird from landing on your head, but you don't have to allow it to build a nest. And I think he makes a good point. Temptation is not sin. But also, when we're talking about temptation, understand that temptation is all about what you allow to keep your attention, to hold your attention. We understand in this story, it was all about the money for him. It was all about the money. Balaam, by inviting his men to his home, was focusing on, how can I get this to happen? Is there any way... I'm not sure who said it first, but I came across this quote. It says, whatever gets your attention gets you. Whatever gets your attention gets you. And saying no to temptation means you change your focus. What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? And sometimes refocusing means staying away from a situation or or maybe leaving the situation or or changing the channel or turning the TV or leaving that website or, or putting a filter on or maybe walking away from that group that's talking as they should not. It may even be extreme like leaving a job and getting a different job because what you focus on gets your attention. 
If you're on a diet and you keep telling yourself, I'm not hungry, I'm not hungry, I'm not hungry, you realize how many times you said hungry? It kind of backfires. What are you focusing on? The more you think about something, the stronger its hold it has on you. James 1.14, James explains it this way. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So when temptation comes, whatever it is, whatever form, get away from it. Don't focus on it. Like the old farmer said, if you don't mean to go into the house, well, then by all means, stay off the porch. Well, number two, when God tries to get your attention, listen up. I mentioned this at the very beginning of the lesson. It amazes me that God would want my attention. Do you ever feel that way? That the God of the universe would want my attention. But you get that message throughout Scripture. Now, God doesn't frequently use your animal to talk to you. To get your attention, he did in this situation. But it teaches us that God will use circumstances to get our attention. Even people. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Abigail talking to David? And David, in summarizing the whole situation, gives God the credit for talking to him through this woman? Does God still work that way? I believe he does. We've got to have ears to hear. And that brings us to the third lesson. When God tells you to do something, do it. When God tells you to do something, do it. I think there is a common thought about God that He is a, a comic killjoy. That to follow the God of heaven means you can have no fun, that your life cannot have any joy about it at all, that to follow him means you are to be miserable because you have to give up all that is good and nothing can be further from the truth. God wants what's best for us. And because of that, I mean, sometimes he tells us no. I think parents get an up-close and personal uh, experience with that. Sometimes we tell our children to do things they don't like, or we do things for our children or to our children that they don't like. But we understand it's it's for their own good. I read this week about three-year-old Garrett. Garrett started getting up earlier and earlier. You know, children are like that. They'll go through a phase where their sleep patterns will change. Evidently for little Garrett, first it was 6.15, and then after a couple of weeks it was 6 o'clock. And then it was 5.45. The parents were going, this is killing us. Little Garrett wasn't getting enough rest. They weren't getting enough rest. And they realized what was going on. It was like when the sun was coming up, Garrett would get up. It woke him up. So the dad put a big heavy blanket on the window. Just, I got to do something. Keep it dark in there. The next morning, little Garrett came into his parents' room at 7.15. Slept all the way to 7.15. And he said, Mommy and Daddy, the sun didn't come up. The sun didn't come up. And then he noticed as he walked into their room in their window, the sun was coming through. And then he says, My sun didn't come up. The parents didn't do that to be mean. They weren't trying to trick their child. They're trying to do what was best for little Garrett. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. It says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. The New Century Version renders it like this. Loving God means obeying his commands, and God's commands are not too hard on us. But for 
are good. God calls Balaam's donkey to talk for his own good, saving him from, from, the, from the angel. It just shows how much God wants our best. And it's interesting to me at the end of the story that Balaam gives up fighting God. Look what he says in verse 34. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing on the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. Basically saying, you got my attention. You've opened my eyes. I'll do whatever the Lord wants you to do, wants me to do. What a good response. And what a good response that we should have. God, open my eyes. Open my ears. Let me see. Let me hear. And let me have a heart that wants to obey. Listen up. Open your eyes. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you've given us your word. That we can study the Bible. And these stories that are short seem rather small, maybe even insignificant, and yet they're not. They show us who you are, and sometimes we see ourselves as well. There are times where we, like Balaam, are focusing on other things that take our attention off of you. Sometimes, like Balaam, we know what's right. We know what to do. We know what you said, And yet we are persistent to try to find a way to do what we want to do instead. Father, forgive us for that. And God, if you're working through circumstances or situation or the vice of godly people, open our eyes to see, to hear your message, to know that you want what's best for us, to hear your warning. Father, help us to listen. Help us to see. Help us to know as your children... You, as our Father, have our best interest at heart. And God, help us to learn the lesson that Balaam learned and to be obedient in our spirit and our actions. It's through Christ we pray. And amen. If we can pray for you in a special way, or tonight, if you are ready to be baptized, we always have the water ready. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?